Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Hokies Press Pass Podcast. Alongside Andy Bitter, the Virginia Tech football beat writer for the Roanoke Times, this is Aaron McFarling, sports columnist for the Roanoke Times. We have, I believe to be, an exciting cast for you today. Jam-packed. Uh, jam-packed. We'll have to keep it moving, and that's my job. Uh, maybe we should call this the Nittany Lion News Minute because... Oh, Good you're Lord. already losing listeners as, as we <laughs> speak right here. I tell you what, we're going to talk some recruiting. Uh, we got a lot of questions about recruiting. We'll kind of uh, discuss that. Uh, Andy had an interview with Whit Babcock this past week. Uh, we'll we'll touch on that as well. And then we have a bunch of listener questions. We'll also get on into Scott Thomas being fired as the softball coach. And a few other news and notes. Uh, not a lot of jokey joke time, I don't think, but we'll have some fun here, I'm sure. Andy, I want to start – with what everyone's still talking about. We talked about it last week. You had read the tea leaves correctly, uh, as had some of the uh, recruiting websites out there, that Devin Ford, the North Stafford star running back, was going to opt for Penn State. Uh, and he did so in a tedious, tedious news conference. No, it was I long. I mean, somebody posted it online. I'm sorry, I don't remember who it was. I think it was Ricky. Uh, did, was it Ricky LeBlue that did it? Well, there was some random person that was like uh... – uh, periscoping it or whatever at the thing like thank those thank those people that are, are filming this thing when they're there but man i sat there for a half an hour like i don't know what it is about athletic directors at high schools but when they get the moment they're gonna filibuster they are gonna talk and talk and talk it's like just get to it the best commitment ceremonies are the ones with that within three minutes they've picked the hat and they're smiling with their family that's all anybody wants to see they don't want to hear about your program and how hard this guy's worked we get that part <laughs> you can talk about that afterwards all you want just get to the commitment already yeah in this day and age when we want it now we want it now so you got to fast forward that to about the 22nd minute and i guess he unzipped his jacket and revealed a nitty lion that's the move now they put the hats and you always think they're going to take a hat but then they're like but i have a t-shirt on i think dax hollyfield did that when he picked virginia tech uh, so yeah, there, there's always some sort of uh, sleight of hand or a misdirection that they do now, where you think that's where the commitment's going to come from, and then it comes somewhere else. What was the Hokie Nation reaction? We had tried to predict what it would be last week when we assumed this would happen. What was it actually? Well, it, I think that it was sort of accepted that that's the way it was going to go. So I don't think it happened, and anybody was quite shocked. I think it was just sort of reinforcing the fact that they had lost this recruit, and. and you know, I'll, I'll put lost in quotation marks. They never had him. I mean, it's not like, uh, yeah, he might have been the favorite for a while, uh, but until somebody signs, and, and that's why I still kind of caution with this whole thing. It's like, yeah, he committed there, but it's still seven months until you sign somewhere. Uh, stuff can happen in between then. Uh, you know, you, you don't really have these guys until they're actually signing the letter of intent. So uh, for however much people thought that uh, Virginia Tech was the leader for the longest time, I, I think it was just very disappointing to, to see another one of these top-ranked recruits go out of state, and, and certainly with Penn State now, where uh, just a couple days later, Brandon Smith, linebacker, goes there. Uh, last year, Ricky Slade, running back, goes there. Uh, another really highly ranked offensive lineman whose whose name is escaping me. Uh, part of the reason why Devin Ford ended up going there is you know a lot of guys that he knows and he's friends with uh, have gone to Penn State, uh, so that that sort of helped with this whole uh, the relationships that had, they had been established there. And uh, you know I think part of it too is I think Penn State is sort of a, a chic pick right now. For t- it seems like it kind of goes in waves in the Commonwealth. 
uh, you know, Florida State was like that for a while. Ohio State was like that for a while. Alabama had a little run there for a while. It seems like Penn State is sort of the out-of-state school right now where a lot of these uh, really top-flight guys are, are choosing to go there in droves. What's the biggest bummer for Tech fans? Is it the fact that he's in-state? Is it the fact that he's a running back? Is it uh, the fact that they thought he was theirs, or some did? I, I think it's that it's a running back. Okay. And because you look at uh, the history of Virginia Tech, and it's had this history of really good running backs, but it's been a while. I mean, it's been a minute since they've had It's David Wilson was the last guy. Uh, he left in 2011. I think he was the class of 2000, what was it? 2009 I think because he didn't redshirt so he played in 2009 10 and 11 went pro I, th- I believe he was class of 2009 uh, same class as Logan Thomas uh, one of the top guys in the state and since then who have they really landed as a running back that's been a big deal I mean the biggest deal running back that they landed was Drew Harris and he never got here <laughs> he, they, they beat a whole bunch of, of schools to secure his uh, commitment out of uh, I think Downington East in Pennsylvania and uh, he never qualified academically. It became kind of a running joke. Like, uh, when's Drew Harris getting here? It's like, he's not getting here. It's, it's not going to happen. And, uh, you know, I guess Trey Edmonds was a pretty good signee, and then he got hurt and never was quite the same guy. And uh, J.C. Coleman was a pretty well-regarded guy, but he never really had the size. He never really came across as sort of that featured back type of guy. Shy McKenzie, Marshawn Williams, there were high hopes. They both had injuries earlier in their careers, ended up not even finishing at Virginia Tech. Marshawn for injuries, Shy transferred. Uh, Trayvon McMillan was supposed to be the guy and had the thousand yard season, then fell out of favor with his new staff. There's just been nobody to sort of take that mantle as the, uh, the, the primary running back. Like you had for a while there when it was Lee Suggs and Kevin Jones and, and all those guys that Darren Evans, Ryan Williams. Williams. Uh, I mean, there was a really good run there of running backs that Virginia tech had, but, uh, they hadn't. And, you know, when this whole commitment was going down and, uh, you know, people were like, oh, well, Virginia Tech's beaten Penn State for the services of the top running back in the country before when they got Kevin Jones. And I'm like, that's 17 years ago. That's a long time ago. So uh, it's – I think people remember that and they look at the past and they go, oh, well, it's done it before. It's like it's been a long time. And when you're talking about 17 years ago, you're talking about – the entire life of some of these uh, guys that are committing these days. So uh, it, it hasn't happened in a while where Tech has had a really good recruiting uh, at running back and landed sort of that top flight guy, and I think that's probably the most disappointing part for Hokies fans. Well, I just looked up where Kevin Jones was born, and it's Chester, uh, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. Where there's a casino there, uh, but it's always comes is, back to gambling with the, you. Always comes back. That's what you got to do. You got to go up in their territory and grab their guys. Um, but it's not just as you as you touched on. Uh, it's not just uh, this running back. This particular running back. It's it's what three of the top four guys in the state. Uh, two have committed already. Cameron. Kelly, I believe his name is, wide receiver uh, from Oscar Smith, is heavily leaning towards Penn State. So I think that'd be three of the top four in the state uh, that'd be choosing Penn State. And I think two of the top three the previous year had gone to Penn State. And, you know, we get these questions like, why Penn State? And I I read the stories and the commitments, and and Brandon Smith is like, oh, it's just a real family atmosphere up there. First of all, you hear that with everybody that commits anywhere. You hear that about Virginia Tech. So I, I think it's just sort of a preference or what people want to see in some of this stuff. Uh, part of it is that I think it's just, you know, Penn State is sort of a program 
that's cool right now. It's on the rise. I mean, it had Saquon Barkley there. It's finished in the top 10 the last couple of years. It's been on the verge of the, the playoff the last couple of years. Which is unconscionable to and, me, given where they were. Yeah, How I mean. How long ago was that, that uh, the whole Sandusky thing went down? Was that I mean, five years ago, I mean, six it's years not ago? That long ago? It's not that long ago. I thought they would be hit a lot harder. Uh, and the, the NCAA did punish them initially, and then there were threats of lawsuits, and they pulled that back, and they people kind of wondered whether that was their jurisdiction to actually hand out uh, punishments in terms of scholarship reductions because of that. And I'm sort of on the fence about it. Part of it is like, well, how do you punish uh, the current players on the team for something that they had nothing to do with? Uh, you know, the, the guys that were involved in this whole thing are going to jail because of that. The other side of me is is that part of the reason that they did the things that they did was to protect the program and protect the reputation of the coach. Uh, doing things for the state of the program, I think, is something you see a lot of times, and sometimes the program gets off scot-free uh, at the end of this. So I, I, I kind of feel like you should be punished for this stuff, even if it does uh, impact some people that had nothing to do with it. But, uh, you know, I think it speaks to the... Uh, you know, the power of resources and Penn state has a lot of them for football. Uh, not only that Penn state hit the right hire with James Franklin. I mean, he understands Penn state. He's a showman, uh, on the recruiting trail. Uh, you know, a lot of people, I, I read this stuff about James Franklin, like, Oh, he's genuine. And he's, he's like this. It's an act. Like, don't get me wrong. It's an act. It's a very successful act. I, I think, Buzz Williams, to a degree, does this very well at Virginia Tech, too. And I, I, I think sometimes people confuse, like, the public persona that this guy puts out there with the maybe what the private persona is of these people. And I, I, I can kind of see through some of this and go, man, he's, he's acting like this successfully, and it's working. And well, I'll, give, I'll give him credit there. But, you know, you know P- Tennessee is, has the resources, you know, that uh, Penn State has, too. But they've screwed up the hire for 10 straight years. There, there's a reason why Tennessee's in the, the condition it is now and Penn State is where it is. They made a great hire with James Franklin. He's a dynamic recruiter. He has Penn State humming again. And I, I think a lot of recruits see that. And, you know, it's sort of a, an en vogue thing to do. Is it, man, Penn State's a program on the rise. I don't think Virginia Tech quite has that reputation, certainly within the state right now. Yeah. Well, Franklin's success really grinds my gears as a Maryland alumnus because, remember, he was the coach in waiting when Ralph was there. That was so horrendously was handled by, by Maryland. Yes. I mean, it's just embarrassing. I, I remember when uh, I was in Auburn and Vanderbilt was going to hire its coach and Gus Malzahn was like the first choice uh, this was right after the Cam Newton won the Heisman and everything like that and, the, and Malzahn ended up turning it down and there were initially reports that he had not that he had taken the job and I, I'm pretty sure those reports came from Franklin because it was the Washington Post guy who, who reported the whole thing oh it's a done deal and I'm sitting there in a, an airport in LaGuardia after the Heisman ceremony trying to get a hold of Gus Malzahn unsuccessfully as it turned out to try to get some kind of confirmation or comment about whether any of this is true uh but then franklin went to vanderbilt coup for for vanderbilt that they Absolutely. got this guy and were actually you know pretty good for a couple years though and but it was obvious that he was bigger and better than vanderbilt and, and penn state snatched him up and uh you know that's obviously been a great hire on their part yeah i looked up the sandusky indictment november 4th 2011 is when the indictment was yeah and then that sort of played out for the next year i think so i mean it's it's kind of a longer time ago than we than we think i mean the Game of Thrones was just a gleam in its mother's eye uh, 
and on November 4th, 2011. It always comes back to you, the <laughs> fact that you are now currently watching Game of Thrones. You're through the Red Wedding now, at least, right? Oh, yeah. Season five now. Season oh, wow. You're, you are cruising. Yeah, you're going to be I'm all caught up. And you're going to be caught up, and then you're going to be upset that there are no new episodes for a while. I'll be very sad, but I still have those other shows that I haven't watched on HBO as well. Okay, I'm going to read these three recruiting-related questions just to give credit to the people that asked them. And if there's anything on here that we didn't touch on, we can touch on. Yeah, we did solicit reader questions for yeah. this. A, a lot of the questions pertain to recruiting, so we'll do it up front. Okay, this is from Thomas Sherrod. Andy, do you think we can't close on a four- or five-star running back because of the offense, our location, poor results in the pros, quality of running back coaching, or too many quality programs nearby, or all of the above? It hurts to see amazing talent go up the road when we have a ready slot for them to start. Yeah, I think the case, everybody's always looking for the silver bullet of why uh, a recruit goes somewhere, and really it's always everything combined. I mean, they want to say, oh, well, the recruiting staff didn't, or the, the staff didn't uh, connect to these guys. Well, that might have been a factor. Oh, the offense doesn't cater to running backs. I think that might be a factor. I mean, you look at the production that Virginia Tech has had at the running back spot. It hasn't really had a featured back under Fuente. And then you look at Penn State and uh, Saquon Barkley's number two pick in the draft. Right. I'm not saying that's the reason. And some people are like, oh, well, where's the big linebacker recruit that Tech got after Tremaine Edmonds? Or where's the big cornerback recruit they got after uh, Kyle Fuller? And, you know, I'd probably argue that they have done pretty well at cornerback. But. Uh, you know, that's not the only reason. I think it's a factor in the whole thing. Uh, I, I think part of it is just Virginia Tech within the state just doesn't really seem cool to a lot of these top flight guys. It's been a thing for a while now to go out of state and uh, play at these programs, quite frankly, that have national championship aspirations, realistic national championship aspirations. And I don't think Tech's to that point yet. Now, uh, keep winning 10 games a year, uh, maybe close the gap on Clemson, maybe win the ACC at some point. I think that reputation starts to change, and maybe some of these in-state guys want to stay here. But, I mean, it's been 10 years plus, I think, where uh, you, know, you can go all the way back to those Percy Harvin years when that was sort of the start of all these guys are going out of state, not staying in Virginia, and, and Virginia Tech has not been able to sort of reverse that trend. Certainly the end of the Frank Beamer era, it, it's hard to argue, hey, this is a place where you're going to go challenge for ACC titles and you're going 7-5 and five every year. Well, I don't uh, think... I, I think it's just... It, it's a combination of factors. I don't think there's any one thing. I don't think you can overstate the emphasis of the Barkley decision, or the Barkley situation, going second in the draft. Like, I'm trying to put myself in Ford's position, okay? Yeah, uh, wanting to play right away is a big deal and all those things. But, man, you know, how long have we been hearing that people don't get drafted in the top five if they're running backs anymore? I mean, it just doesn't happen. So to be featured that prominently, uh, to get that kind of uh, – because what? Uh, all these guys who are four or five star guys, they have pro aspirations. That's the ultimate goal, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think – there, like you said, there are a million factors involved, but I think that one really gives a, a nice uh, nudge to Penn State there just that, that it happened just a month ago. I, I think a big deal of it too is relationships. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you like to play with guys that you know pretty well. And you always hear every year, it's like, oh, this guy turned into the, one of the best recruiters, this commit that they had, tried to convince other people. And I think that's overstated at times. But when you have friends that are playing at a certain place, you have former teammates that are playing at a certain place, I think that helps too. And that helps you make, make you feel more comfortable in a certain situation. I think. You know, looking at Devin Ford's comments afterwards, he's like, you know, Penn State did everything right. And he's like, Virginia Tech did everything right, too. I just, Penn State just felt a little bit better. So I, I don't feel it's like a failure on Virginia Tech's part. They just, 
couldn't quite offer as much or, you know, sway him as much as Penn State did. And sometimes that happens in recruiting. Okay, I'll read the other two questions. I think we've kind of covered them, but I'll give credit to these guys for asking. Uh, JKMan08 on Twitter. I like that his name is also JKMan08 in addition to his handle. Keep it consistent. I like it. Uh, Is there something recruiting-wise that VT is failing to do that is making all the top in-state talent go elsewhere? Is there something us fans are missing? Do you feel like you've kind of covered that, or is there something you want to Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's it's not – I feel like sometimes people just kind of lump all the top in-state talent together and say, oh, all of them are leaving. It's like, well, Devin Hunter stayed last year, and he was considered, I think he was number two in the state in the rankings. Some might might have had him number one. Well, he was out of state. He was from North Carolina. Uh, So, I mean, they've kept some guys around, and they've kept some guys in the 757, and sometimes I hear sort of this blanket, blanket statement about this, oh, why aren't they appealing to guys in the 757? It's like, well, they are to some, just not all. Right. And it's not like the 757 operates as a collective group. Right. I mean, Devin Hunter chose Virginia Tech, and he had offers anywhere he wanted to go, quite honestly. So, uh, you know, the message has resonated with some. I, I think it's easier with some of these defensive recruits because Virginia Tech can point to that Bud Foster defense over time. Uh, maybe it takes a little bit longer to change some minds uh, with some of these offensive guys. And I say that, and then you look at Brandon Smith, a, a top-flight linebacker who goes out of state as well. So, uh, you know, I don't think there's any one single answer. But, you know, you look at the whole of Virginia Tech's recruiting, it has improved the last couple of years. Uh, I think you look at the number of four-star guys, the number of teams that they're beating, like quality teams that they're beating for some of these recruits. It might not be top 10 classes or top 15 classes, but I think on the whole – uh, there's been an acquisition of talent the last couple of years that has, have been better, certainly, than it was in the latter Frank Beamer years. Okay, and then the last question regarding recruiting was from Joseph Nemec, or Nemec, uh, at Joseph underscore Nemec 15 on Twitter. What do you think changed Devin, minds, Devin Ford's mind so quickly? Because it seemed like it was all hokey, something fishy. Do you think there's something fishy? I people always that's the very first thing that people point to is like, oh, well, they must have been paying him or something, some nonsense like that. No. Uh, he doesn't mean you, Joseph. He no, no. I just, in general, people said that seems to be the reaction. The reaction when somebody commits it is like, oh, we didn't want him anyway, or he, he wasn't going to fit our system, or oh, somebody else is you know offering him you know something under the table. I don't think that's what it is. I, you know, Penn State had the luxury of being the last official visit. Their spring game was a week later than Virginia Tech's, and he went there up there for that. Uh, that whole trip seemed to really sway things. I, I don't know if it was like that going into that, but it seemed like Penn State sort of had momentum. You have to remember some of these get, you know, these are 17-, 18-year-old kids. They're very swayed by whatever is the last thing that they see in front of them. I think that's a pretty important thing in terms of uh, getting the last visit like that and being able to make the last pitch. Uh, I don't know what swayed it necessarily. It sounds like the relationships were a big deal. I think when you get there, you see what Penn State has to offer. I don't know how many trips he had made up there prior to that, but you know, Penn State's a really good program. I mean, this is, this is like a top 10 program of all time, and it's kind of clicking on all cylinders right now. They have things going again. They finished in the top 10 the last couple of years. They've produced a very good running back just recently. I think you look at the entire scope of everything, it shouldn't be all too surprising that he, he was able to turn – yeah, so quickly from a, a Virginia Tech lean to a Penn State lean. Plus 70,000 at their spring game compared to 38,362. Spring game attendance matters. Here we go. <laughs> We're going to go down this rabbit hole again. All right, some quick housekeeping before we move on here. Some early season kickoff times announced for the Hokies uh, last week. 
September 8th versus William and Mary will be at 2 p.m. on the ACC Network Extra. And September 15th versus ECU, 12.20 p.m. on ACC Network. That, that noise you hear is the reporters rejoicing. Glorious early starts. I love that. I mean, the only way it could be better is if they were both noon. Like, give me, give me all night to watch football, all the top games. Like, they those games don't need to be at night. Like, that's good. Those games should be up early. Uh, get them out of the way. Yeah, it helps the people outside, you know, like what, in 757 and Northern Virginia, that helps those people too, right? And I mean, that's the thing I say to make it, to mask the fact that I'm, <laughs> I'm cheering for this for myself. But, uh, I mean, you, you don't need all day for those games. I mean, those are, are two kind of, you don't really get up for those kind of games. So I, I'm glad they're early. They don't need to be at night. They're, yeah. they're going to be games later in the year. They get Georgia Tech's at night. You got Miami at home, Notre Dame at home. I think those potentially could both be at night. So give us give us a break on some of these early ones. Yeah, I right? need to be eating chips and salsa by about 7.30. Exactly. On those dates. Okay, let's get into this Whit Babcock, inter- sorry, Whit Babcock interview that you had. Um, a two-part series you vlogged uh, here the last couple of days. Uh, I'll just – we'll go to the money first because Witt's a money man. Um, you asked him about the ACC network and the budget and whether they're going to operate in the black um, soon or, or you know, because they had a deficit. What what stood out to you about the money stuff? Well, the deficit was a little misleading this year. I think it was listed as a $3.3 million shortfall on paper. Part of that was they took the $4 million guarantee from the Battle of Bristol and moved it over to the scholarship fund, anticipating – not enough uh, funds there to cover that. They actually exceeded expectations, and when they did all that, they couldn't actually move the money back. So it looks like a loss on paper, but actually uh, they're probably about breaking even for the year. Uh, you know, their revenues have continued to gone, go up. They're north of $90 million right now. They're going to be $100 million pretty soon, possibly next year, just because they got that $15 million donation, that one-time thing. So I think if that goes on a single year as a, a donation, uh, instead of like over a course of a couple years, that's going to kind of spike for a single year like that. Uh, I think it's interesting because, you know, to be competitive uh, on the national scene, you need to continue to grow that revenue. And as much as Virginia Tech has continued to grow that revenue, everybody else is growing that revenue too. So, right. I mean, they're at 90 million, they're still 40th or so nationally in athletic department revenue, uh, you know, looking at the USA Today database. Uh, even if you add the most optimistic figures from that ACC network, and I think they're you know the ACC schools are looking at this ACC th- network thing as a, a big boon. Uh, we'll see how much of a revenue producer that is. I, I think some people are like, oh, $10 million a year, something like that. If it does get to that point, I don't think it's going to start at that point. But even if you add $10 million to Tech's current uh, athletic department revenue, they're still like in the 30s. Uh, they're still you know, middle to bottom half of the power five in terms of revenue. And, uh, you know, relative to other ACC schools, every other ACC school is going to see that bump as well. So I feel like a lot of people are looking at this ACC network as sort of a panacea to uh, all the problems revenue-wise and the shortfalls that they've had or, or not being able to afford certain coaches and, in, in, you know, continuing to give raises to the best coaches out there. Uh, it solves some issues, but it's still not going to all of a sudden they're up in the, the top 10 or something like that revenue nationally. They're still going to face problems against schools like, you know, Texas uh, that has, uh, I, I think I looked up the numbers the other day. It makes like $110 million in donations and ticket sales, whereas tech is at like $37 million for wow. those two. I mean, that that's where the huge gap comes in. 
Uh, and, and, you know, as much as this might close the gap on the Big Ten and the SEC in terms of uh, media rights and the money that pays out, I mean, the Big Ten, the SEC is still around 40 and 50 million, whereas the ACC this year is like 28. So even if you add 7 million to that, which is still an optimistic figure for the ACC network, I mean, you're talking about 35 million versus 50 million. There's still a gap there. So uh, I think revenue-wise, tech is doing better. The donations have been great this year. Uh, a record-setting amount, 47 million, I think, when you add in that 15 million uh, one-time donation for the uh, athletic performance center, they're calling it on the fourth floor with a new dining area and everything like that. But uh, there's still going to be challenges. I mean, they're, they're still going to be have to punch above their weight class to compete nationally. And uh, I think sometimes that that's kind of what fans lose sight of is like financially, tech is doing very well for where it is standing. Uh, but people keep going, oh, we want a national championship caliber football program. It's like, that's tough to get. That's tough to get with the financial standing that they have. So I, I think that's always just sort of something to, to take into account. Did I read correctly that the, 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 the number of donors actually went down? Slightly. Okay. Uh, when they started the drive for 25, I think it was around 10,000. That kind of shot up 30 right. to 40%. They were up above 13,000. And I think as the last I checked, it was just south of 13,000. Okay. Uh, that's not a full year-end figure, so I don't know if year-to-year year that's actually down. It might be down slightly or just kind of plateauing. Uh, yeah, treading water in that sense. But the donation amount went up significantly. Right. So uh, I know the drive for 25 is you get to 25,000. That's a pipe dream right now. I mean, that's, that's so far off uh, that I, I don't even know, honestly, if they'll ever get there. But the point is to try to, to mine the whole donations and the, the donor base and get more there and – you know, Whit Babcock, uh, I think he cited these figures, 250,000 living alumni, and he's like, there's probably 250,000 more Virginia Tech fans from that. So out of 500,000 fans, you know, I, again, I don't know if the number is accurate, but he's like, to get to 25,000 for donors, you know, that seems like a reasonable goal. But that's a ways off. I, I, I don't – they're going to inch up towards that over time. It's not going to be like, oh, instantly they're going to double their donor base overnight. Right. Well, you can read the whole thing online at toronto.com you know andy did i think in my personal opinion did a very nice job asking some of the tougher questions you know the gail and scott stuff wit is getting better at better in my opinion of uh elevating those questions and just sort of saying nothing while saying something and trying to be polite uh but he did talk a little bit about the uh the long-term plans for lane stadium and castle coliseum uh what what can you tell us about that well, they're kind of wrapping up a building phase now where they've touched on all the sports. Uh, you know, they did the baseball stadium, which is fantastic. I mean, I've been over there. It's, it's a great experience at that stadium now. The softball got some new facilities, the indoor track. Uh, I think there's a tennis project that's still uh, going on. They've touched a lot of different sports in the student athletic or student performance center, the dining area that they're going to put on the fourth floor is an all sports thing. So they've done all that. Uh, there's a university capital campaign that's coming up in two years, I believe. Uh, and part of the push on that with athletics, they're going to try to simplify it to scholarships, Castle Coliseum, and Lane Stadium. Those are the kind of the things they want to address this time. And, uh, you know, Castle Coliseum, it might be uh, adding some more chairbacks to the rest of the uh, arena. I know they did that for the lower parts. Uh, maybe looking at some revenue generating seating, whether that's like a club level or suites or somehow they want to widen the concourses in there, uh, make it, uh, basically they want to make it a little more, have more of the creature comforts of some of the modern arenas while keeping the intimacy of Castle Coliseum and, and the, uh, college feel of that whole thing. 
which I think is the right move. I mean, people always ask me, it's like, are they going to build a new arena for basketball? It's like, first of all, where would they build it? Right. I mean, Castle is a perfect location. Second of all, where would they play in the interim if they were to build it on the same spot where Castle is? I mean, that's, uh, you know, there's not like a logical place that they can just go. Are they going to play it in Salem for a year? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. I don't know where they would put that. So uh, I think renovating Castle is kind of the move to go. Uh, it's like we talked about a lot. I mean, it's a really good stadium in terms of an atmosphere when it's like cranked up and that place is full. Uh, there are some things that you can do to add to it to make it, you know, have some of those sort of comforts of some of these modern arenas that are out there. Lane Stadium, you know, he's talked about Lane Stadium and he said it's kind of perfect the way it is. I mean, it's been set up extremely well by the people that preceded him and the, the West Side expansion that they did uh, was fantastic. Uh, they don't need to add seats to that place. I mean, they're not selling out 67,000 as, as it is. Uh, I think he talked a little bit about possibly some sort of club level seating or some suites possibility on the east side of the stadium, which is just sort of that mass of seats that goes straight up. Uh, possibly removing the windows from some of the boxes to make them open air. I think he said that would be like a $10 million cost if they decided something like that. There are some ideas that they want to do, but uh, there's not any sort of like massive overhaul of lane stadium i think they feel like the majority of everything they have going in lane right now is pretty good okay you touched on basketball i wanted to get this note in there john rothstein from cbs sports.com virginia tech will play washington as part of a quadruple header in atlantic city on december 15th i suddenly want to go see some non-conference basketball I think you could sell that with a new sports gambling legalization. You could yeah. go up there and do a big piece on how it's affected the casinos there. What it could what it could bring to Virginia if they. I think I think that I, could be e- you could easily sell that. There's a lot of money involved. I know the higher ups here love it when money is involved in the story. That would be perfect for. And it. the money for the hotel rooms would be copped, <laughs> so that'd make it a lot easier too. No, I mean, you say that kind of tongue in cheek, but I actually think there could be a really good story written out of that I'm place. Tr- I'm selling. If I'm, I'm there on a business you, trip, I would write something uh, pretty good. I think I am rooting for you. On well, this one. thank you, thank you. All right, well, you, you know, just minutes after standing up from his interview with you, uh, Whit Babcock <laughs> fires Scott Thomas. No, I'm just kidding. It's not true. I talked to him last <laughs> Thursday, so it's not like. <laughs> The, when I posted the interview, it kind of came out like exactly when he with Scott Thomas was right. not retained. Your question hurt him so bad he had yeah. to, he had to put somebody on the chopping block. Well, Scott Thomas, twenty three years as the coach of uh, Virginia Tech softball, eight NCAA tournament appearances. Four of those came when Angela Tencher was there, the James River graduate, who I would argue is the most transcendent athlete in the history of Timesland High Schools. Currently, the interim coach. Yeah, I mean she is. Uh, uh, you know, to beat the U.S. Olympic team is un- uh, unbelievable. I mean, that was back when the obviously softball was in the Olympics, and that was the marquee event of the softball cycle. And nobody beat them. I think they had like a 145 game winning streak, and Tinger beat them. I think he deserves a lot of credit for recruiting her. Uh, she wasn't that highly recruited because she played at such a small school um, in, in James River, a single A school, but. Uh, Beyond that, I mean, you know, if you look at the rest of the 19 years, you know, four NCAA tournament appearances, they've missed three in a row. They've had some losing seasons here lately. Not overly stunned, but it is a little bit of a shot across the bow that there won't be sort of those, uh, I don't know what, what, I don't know what the term would be for legacy coach, legacy coach. Yeah. Or sort of the, 
that that just you know because you built the program, you just you can decide when you want to leave. Regardless, uh, I think this and Scott Thomas's quotes to Mark Berman in our story that we had today illustrate all of that. That he understood uh, the business side of this, and he understood that they hadn't been going in the right direction. You have any thoughts on softball or? Uh, I'm not going to sit here and pretend to be a softball insider and, and understand everything that's been going on with that program. I will say, uh, you know, they have invested a lot into facilities recently. With the, they have a hitting center that they opened up over there. There were some things that they added. I mean, I, I think they've only been in that hitting center for like two months yeah. or something like that. Uh, these seem like some key pieces to recruiting that now he was never going to be able to take advantage right. of and never have that opportunity. And it, I, I just feel like, man. If you've invested that into the program and you've had a guy that's been around for so long, wouldn't you give him the chance to kind of capitalize on that? Uh, and if, if recruiting is part of the reason why they've had sort of this dip lately, uh, when you have more attractive things like that, I think that would be a boost to it. it, it I kind of felt like that last year with baseball where you yeah, have, I was gonna say, yeah. you have uh, uh, Pat, Mason, Pat, Mason Pat Mason get all the way up to when the new stadium's going to open and that doesn't get to re- reap the benefit of that. It's like, well... The whole point of upgrading these sort of facilities is so you can have better recruiting with that and then to say, well, you don't even get the opportunity to do that. Uh, with Mason, I kind of wondered whether he was ever going to turn it around. I mean, he was a, a, a guy from the previous staff that was doing it. But, you know, Scott Thomas, like you said, he built this program. I mean, he got it through the heights from nothing. I mean, he was, he's the only coach the program's ever known. Uh, that's the only part of this whole thing that I kind of look at. I go, eh, maybe could have given him a chance to, to capitalize on those new building projects. Yeah, I would say wait and see who they hire because if they can hire somebody with a really strong track record like they did with baseball, uh, getting John Sheff down there, um, then maybe it makes a lot more sense. You know, but if you're going to tread water with you know somebody who's not that proven. Uh, you know, maybe Scott deserved more of a more of a lengthy rope there. Do you keep? I mean, does the new coach absolutely have to keep Angela Tinter on staff? I don't I, know. I, would that seem like? I mean, I again, I don't know the the ins and outs of softball coaching and recruiting and everything like that, and uh, what she's done there. But man, that is quite a name to have on staff. Uh, <laughs> I feel like losing that would be a, a big loss. I don't know what kind of recruiter she is. I mean, because that's. I mean, wouldn't that be number one on your list? Is we need, number to, one, we need to have one pitcher who can just blow everybody away. And that's, I feel like she could offer something from a pitching coach yeah. standpoint. Yeah, though, you would I think. Mean, she's <laughs> how good of an, uh, a pitcher she was in her days. I think she could offer something there. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Next listener question: Tristan Raish at Tristan Raish on Twitter. So help you if there's no picnic casket this week. Also, what do you think are reasonable expectations for the linebackers? There's talent there, but how much, oh, he's just a young player, do you think the fan base should expect this season? That's a good question. I like that question. I also like that he likes picnic caskets. I I think a lot of these guys are young. I think you're going to hear a lot of that this year because that's been the history of that position. Uh, I, I, I wasn't here when Adibi and Hall were here. It sounds like they caught on a lot of fourth pretty, quarters ago. They caught on pretty quick. Yeah, I would assume uh, those were two also pretty exceptional talents in terms of where they were ranked recruiting wise. I, I think maybe they had a little bit of more of an advantage coming in. Uh, the guys that they have set up are are pretty well regarded recruits. Certainly with Dylan Rivers, Dax Hollyfield. Beyond that, Rayshard Ashby a little bit less. I think he was a three star guy, kind of middle of the pack recruit. Uh, but I mean, you hear Bud Foster say it all the time. It's like, oh, experience is the best teacher. And, uh, you know, you look at Andrew Matua-Bawaka, who was sort of a middle-of-the-pack recruit, and he had his struggles early on. 
Uh, I don't think a lot of the fan base ever forgave him for those struggles because he was still a senior and being pretty productive, and they were still just ripping a, a new one every time he missed a tackle, anytime, like, as if linebackers in Virginia Tech history never missed tackles before. Uh, you know, Tremaine Edmonds, when he was a young player and coming along, I mean, he didn't start till he was a sophomore after he'd sort of gotten his feet wet uh, a little bit at the position as a true freshman. I guess that's the situation both Ashby uh, and Dylan Rivers are going into this season. But, uh, you know, young players make mistakes. And when you're a young player next to a young player, I think that kind of compounds the problem. I mean, Tremaine Edmonds had the uh, advantage of playing next to a more experienced guy next to him in Matupuaka. Uh, I think you go back a couple years and, you know, Jack Tyler was a pretty experienced guy when Deion Clark came along. They, they haven't really had like two guys that are brand new at that inside linebacker spot. So the fact that both of them will be going through it for the first time, and there's not really that veteran guy to lean on in either of those two. Yeah, I think you're going to see some growing pains this year, and, and especially since there are some question marks at other levels of the defense as well. It's not like just everything around them is uh, completely solidified. The only question are these two inside linebackers. I think you look in the secondary, there's some question marks. Defensive line depth, even though I think the starters are, are pretty solid in that group, some question marks there as well. So, uh, yeah, I think there will be some growing pains. You know, we're not the type that usually records the games and goes back and watches them clip by clip, but I, maybe these first couple games it would be it would be interesting to just go back and and watch just specifically the linebackers how they're reacting on every play and those kinds of things. I, I should have spoke for you. Maybe you do go back and watch other. I record it and then I'm always like I, I just don't have the time to go back. I mean Sundays. <laughs> doing your five thoughts. I do the five thoughts. I get my poll out of the way and then like. I'd like to see my family, so it's just like I I got to have some time off on a Sunday. You want to read the number three question? Number three. This is a good one. Maybe give Aaron five minutes or so each podcast to review a casino that he's visited. Has he been to Cherokee? If a casino is built in Virginia, where should it be located? And Salem is not a good answer. This is Ken Goodrich at Ken Goodrich. I'll take this even a step further. If you were building your ideal casino in Virginia... Where would you put it, and what would you have in it? I'm going to ask, answer his first part first. Uh, yes, I've been to Cherokee, Ken. Um, in fact, I'm going next he month. He was singing Cherokee's praises right before the I podcast. Call, I called Cherokee this morning, or yesterday, I should say, because I accidentally booked a smoking room on the Internet, and they said I couldn't revise it on the Internet, so I had to call. And I called, and the woman said, oh, Mr. McFarlane, we have you in a non-smoking room. Uh, don't worry about it. We know what you like. You're big time. <laughs> you are said, big time, man. That uh, – I, 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 we don't have time for me to review Cherokee, but let me just say it is my utopia. Uh, Camden Yards used to be my utopia. Now Cherokee has every – it's a hunting lodge with gambling. When it you is, drive out there, do you listen to the song Cherokee <laughs> on a loop over and over that, and over? I actually make a CD. That would get the, me hyped for go to the casino. I make a CD for the family trip every year called Cherokee 2016, 2017, whatever, and we listen to it on the way down. I will add that. I will add the Europe song this year. Uh, where would I build it, and what would the ideal – well, I would build it in Richmond because I want it to succeed. Uh, Richmond's far enough away from the competitors in West Virginia and Maryland – uh, that you can you can appeal to a large population base, but not have uh, you know a lot of competition nearby. Um, I guess the other option would be somewhere in the you know seven five seven area, Virginia Beach, something like that. You don't want to deal with the traffic down there. I don't want to deal with the traffic, and I don't I don't 
I want uh, people from our area to be able to get there in a reasonable amount of time. Um, so I, I would build an enrichment. Well, there's talk of one in the, uh, like New Kent, a, New yeah. Kent yeah, which would be Indian my uh, my in-laws live in New Kent by Colonial Downs. So yeah. I, I could be like, I don't want to bet on archived horse races. I want to go <laughs> to a real casino. I could go there. So that'd be great. Build it in there. Do yep. it. Yep. All right. Moving on. Next. Well, one. What, what would you put in it? You'd have all the all the stuff. I would be the pick full up mountain. Cherokee and move it there. Okay. I mean, exactly whatever everything Cherokee has pool poolside bar and and food service, uh, terrific buffet, uh, you know, restaurants, uh, nature. Uh, you're right at the gateway to the Smoky Mountain National Park. Does it have Park. shows? Do they have, like, Tom Jones oh, come in and stuff? Yeah, they have a, an amphitheater. They just opened a bowling alley that's like a neon bowling alley with a huge arcade for kids. I mean, it's it's a great family. I don't want to send people down there because I love how it's who's, not all that busy. Who's a good Richmond act that they could have on retainer there? Well, they, you know, like Old Dominion they've had down there, you know, like – like those country bands, they've had. Um, I'm trying to think of like a Richmond specific artist. Jason Mraz, is he from Richmond? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know I'm if he not... would really draw in the crowd there. Carbon yeah. Leaf. This is, this is my my wife is from Richmond. She loves these. Oh, okay. She's a big fan of the music. Yeah, I, I don't think that's the casino feel that you're going for. <laughs> All right, moving on. Number four, uh, what position do you think Tex – oh, sorry, this is from John and Culpepper. What position do you think Tex offense is most suited to attract a top-flight recruit? Personally, I think it's wide receiver. Fuente's scheme isn't set up to attract top running backs, but wide receivers have consistently outstanding numbers, and I think the recruits will start to notice. Love the podcast. Thank you, John. We appreciate that. I'd say quarterback. I mean, that's sort of Justin Fuente's biggest draw is that he's had successful quarterbacks in the past. Now, not all of them have gone on to NFL success, and maybe that's a, a demerit uh, when, when recruits are looking at that. But Andy Dalton was the first or second round pick who's been in the pros for a long time. Paxton Lynch has not been a success in the NFL, but he, he was at least a first round pick. Uh, Gerard Evans had a record-setting year at Virginia Tech. Josh Jackson did very well as a redshirt freshman. Quincy Patterson's a top recruit that's come in. I think they just sort of appeal to those sort of top-notch quarterbacks or at least catch their eye. They're in the mix with that. I think Fuente has a reputation. Brad Cornelson, the offensive coordinator, too, that you know if you want to develop this guy as a quarterback and have a really good college career, that's certainly something they've done along the way. Uh, would help them if some of these guys went on to have a little bit more NFL success. But uh, receiver, possibly. I think the, the jury is kind of still out on receiver because the guys that they have had that have been record setters were not recruited by them. So I, Isaiah Ford, uh, Cam Phillips, both recruited by the previous staff. And, you know, honestly, Isaiah Ford kind of had his breakout before the new staff got here. It continued uh, when the staff got here. Bucky Hodges, I guess you could throw in that mix as well, even though he was kind of a tight end, too. Uh, so that's why I say maybe the jury's still a little bit out on receiver, but uh, with this staff's history and, and Fuente's history, I think quarterback, you look back at his different stops, he's done very well at that position. Yeah, I would defer to you there, and I, I would agree with you. Certainly not running easy, back. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's easier to say what they're not suited to. It's an O-line and, and running back. Is, well, I think O-line has, has done a little bit better, better recruiting-wise yeah. lately, and those guys just take so long to develop and actually get into a spot where they can play. But But running back has sort of really been the shortcoming there. Maybe if Coleman Fox has a breakout season, people will see what a, a running back can do here. He better, because I'm going to bang that drum for a long time. I think he can contribute. I think they should give him a little bit more opportunities. Okay, here's a non-football question from Jim Linville, at Sunset Rider, that's Rider with a Y, on Twitter. 
Besides more conference wins, what is it going to take for the baseball team to make the ACC conference tournament consistently? Virginia had some pretty good high school baseball. Has some pretty good high school baseball. Don't tell me it's Blacksburg. I've been to Corvallis, Oregon. Well, I, I will defer to you on this in a second because you're a baseball guy. You were a college uh, player, uh, so you would know this better than I would. But I, I think a big deal is the stadium upgrade because now you have something to recruit to here. I mean, before, that was really a high school stadium. I mean, the way it was set up, and then you even compare it to a school within the state like Virginia, which has a, a pseudo-minor league stadium. I mean, that, that place is great up there. I've been up there uh, a couple times to cover games, and you can see why you can recruit to those kind of facilities. I think that was lacking at Virginia Tech. They've changed that now. That's a pretty good stadium. They have an indoor batting uh, facility over there now. Uh, I think these are the things that you have to have to sort of uh, appeal to recruits, and it takes a little while to get that going. And this new stadium has only been open for you know 15 minutes. <laughs> looking at the watch right now, I think that's the first step to it. Uh, what else is there in terms of creating a consistent program? Well, what John Chef did at Maryland is the blueprint. He went out of state and he went up to Pennsylvania and he went to New York and he got these guys who were fringe, you know, maybe third, fourth round possible draftees, and he recruited those guys and the talent base got a lot better. I don't, I, you know. Uh, Jim asks, you know, well, you know, there's there's good high school baseball in Virginia. Well, not really around here necessarily. Maybe over, you know, all the eastern. Radford's done pretty good. Yeah, I'm, no, I think he's saying high school baseball. Right, I'm just oh, saying, yeah. but Radford. But they have a lot, a lot of New York kids guy. too. That's I mean, true. I think you get you got to go to the cold weather states where people aren't getting a ton of offers, you know, from the SEC and and other places, and you got to lure, you got to have an eye for that talent, and you got to bring it here. And then you can start winning. And I, I think they will. I think that's what's going to happen. I think you're right about the stadium. That's going to help a ton. But Maryland didn't have a stadium. I mean, Maryland did it. Uh, you know, it still it just blows my mind that Maryland went to back-to-back Super Regionals and played UVA. I mean, it's just having played there and knowing what the program was, it was you, – you take what Virginia Tech is, which is, uh, you know, mediocre to uh, slightly poor – and you just go five rungs down from that, and that's where Maryland baseball was. Last place every year, and just no hope for anything. Bad facilities, everything else, and they turned it around. And now the facilities are better, and people care more than they did, and that's what could happen at Virginia Tech as well. I mean, wasn't that the PTU's blueprint? Is he got all those guys from, from yeah, Massachusetts had, and stuff? And I He mean, had connections up there that other people didn't have, and people were, were sending him – players you know like uh, jesse Hahn, you know a kid from connecticut who throws in the you know the low to mid 90s and ends up pitching in the major leagues but was overlooked you know and didn't have uh you know people aren't scouts aren't you waste some time going to the northeast a lot of times if you're a scout you know you're just the, the concentration of talent is so much greater in the south or in the warm weather states like california florida you know it, you just it's it's hard to it's hard to miss players in the South because they're 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 seen. Even guys like Byron Buxton, your guy, you know, played at a, a college or played at high school in the middle of nowhere, Georgia, and they found him. Um, they'll find you. I mean, Mike Trout was a Northern kid, but he what he went like seventeenth overall. I mean, it was like yeah, you know, a lot of guys passed on him. And so there's players that that uh, you know. You're not going to necessarily have to compete with the LSUs and the Vanderbilts for, and those are the guys you got to get. Yeah, and I think it's incremental. 
I mean, you get a yes. couple of those guys, you build success, and you have a more successful program that you can then lure the in-state guys. I mean, it's kind of like football, too. I mean, yeah. you've seen Virginia Tech going out of state a lot because they missed on these in-state guys. I think if the program wins enough over the long haul and is playing for games more significant than uh, the Camping World Bowl, uh, playing for ACC championships and maybe occasionally winning them, uh, that resonates with recruits. That's when people start to go, okay, this is a program again that's uh, you know cool to go to and it can compete for stuff that I want to play for. Uh, I think it just builds up over time. It's, it's not you just don't flip a switch with this stuff. It is it is a process. Man, time has flown on this podcast, and in the interest of, of keeping it moving, I'm gonna skew my uh, picnic caskets tweet of the week. I'm sorry, Tristan. I had one, but maybe we'll get to it next time. We we have a quick three-round draft we're going to do based on a question that we got. People like the drafts, I think. Yeah, drafts are fun. People like one. the drafts, I think, when it's hokey-related. When yes. it's like, oh, we don't care about what fast foods you like, you fatties. <laughs> well, I, I'm sorry to those people who don't like that, but um, we're we got a lot of feedback gonna... on that. People had opinions about yeah, that. Yeah, I think it's fun, so buzz off. This one's from Jay Fletcher at FletchRVA on Twitter. Can you guys draft Hokie uniforms over the past 20 years? Well, Andy, you've done a handy-dandy blog post in 2016 of the best of the last five years. So uh, in the interest of being able to look at them, uh, I think we're going to use that as our model, and we're also going to go three rounds here. And I'll give you the first pick. You know, well, I was going to give you – I had the first pick last time. So you're going to get the first pick on this one. Okay. Well, I've, I see your this rankings. Is, this here, is the so. most important thing ever because, as we know, uniforms are the number one reason why games are decided in college football. People are going to think this is crazy <laughs> that I'm taking this. I'm going with the Hokie Stone Black. Hokie Stone Black. I, because I, I think what we're talking about here are, are special uniforms maybe, or maybe we're not. Maybe we're just talking about uniforms in general. Just any uniform. Well, the, the only thing, the only problem with the Hokie Stone uniforms is that you don't turn on the TV and say that's Virginia Tech. Although it does make people say, "What does that mean? What is that all about? Why do they have stone uh, a motif on their on their jersey?" And sure. then you know the announcers have to explain that. Uh, you know they show beautiful pictures of the campus with all the Hokie Stone. Uh, I just think, and I'm, I'm a black guy. You know, I'm not a I'm not a black guy, but I'm a black guy. <laughs> I like black. Um, and I think it looks good. I think it looks good on the field. Um, I think it's menacing. Uh, I think it's cool. Does it lose points because the one time it was worn was the Battle of Bristol, where the result was not great? I'm sure it does with fans. Uh, I, I mean, I, I just thought it was really a cool look. And now I had to use binoculars to see that look yes. because we were very far away from the field that night. But uh, man, when you see the guys modeling it, you know, when they when they announced it and stuff, I thought it was. Uh, a pretty cool idea and a cool look. That was the best Hokie Stone that they had. Because remember, they did the Hokie Stone, and then they put like the pylons on there, like the the I forget. It's down on campus where they have that monument, uh, and it's like, is that Virginia Tech? I can't tell. Like at least with these uh, uh, Hokie Stone ones, they had they put a VT on the helmet, so you can tell what it is. And they've reprised it. They had like the Hokie Stone ice last year where it was a white helmet and white pants. I do like the black look better, I think. And you're right, it is a little more menacing. Uh, I, I, I guess I, I don't know how frequently you can bring back those uniforms, but for like the one-time deal like that at the Battle of Bristol, which was obviously such a, a big deal, it was a very good look. I thought it was sharply done. And if they want to bring those back, I have no problem with it. All right, what's your first pick? Well, I gave you the first pick because I knew you wouldn't take, you would go 
oddball off my list. And this is unfair because you're looking at my picks for the last couple of <laughs> years. Uh, I'm going to take all maroon everything because that's I think that's the best look that they have. Uh, you know, all maroon everything is there. It's right there in the title of the uniform. Uh, you know, that's sort of what I've envisioned Virginia Tech over the years. And I, I think you go back to some of those really big wins that they had at home. It's like I want to say they wore that in that Texas A&M game. Yeah. I want to say they wore that in that Miami game where they ended Miami's streak. Uh, it's not necessarily one look that they've had because they've changed the, the shoulder stripes and stuff like that, but just wearing maroon helmets, maroon jerseys, maroon pants, maroon socks. Uh, typically, they've had black shoes with that as well. I think just that whole look screams Virginia Tech, and I like it. And I wish they wear that at home games all the time. Yeah, I can't argue with that. It's a sharp look, although it would not have been my second pick. So you wasted a pick. My second I, pick I wanted to get that one, though, so I'm glad that I got it. Enjoy. Uh, my, num- my number two pick is your number 11 pick. The all-black Halloween look worn versus North Carolina in 2015. This You can uh, blame this on my Oriole leanings here, but it's all black with orange stripes, orange numbers, Black helmet with orange VT logoing, the, the, the standard sports logo for VT. Very crisp, very clean. Looks pretty badass to me. That's a good one. Uh, I liked that at the time, but then when I saw the Hokie Stone uniforms and the use of black in those, then I look back at those ones that they wore in that, and I'm like, I don't like them as much. Uh, I'm hoarding all the black, yes. Yeah, well, you lose... I think that loses some points too because that was the they wore that in the last Frank Beamer game at Lane Stadium, which they lost to North Carolina. Like sometimes your thoughts of how these uniforms are going back uh, are colored by how the, the result of the games. Like, oh, we can never wear all orange again because they lose every time they wear all orange in this stuff. So uh, I, I think that's part of the reason why I look at that those all black uniforms specifically, and I'm like, eh, I don't know about those. Okay, what's your second pick? I'm going to go a little bit different than what I had uh, on my list. Wow. And I'm going to take the road throwback jerseys. And they wore these a number of times in Frank Beamer's last season where it's orange pants, uh, white jersey, and then a, a maroon Virginia Tech helmet with a, a white logo that kind of has a wide border. And like I think they wore those in the Independence Bowl, the first bowl game that they won. Uh, in 1993, or the first bowl game of the streak, I should say, not the first bowl game they won. Uh, and then they reprised that look in Frank Beamer's last year. They did wear it at the the uh, Independence Bowl they went to a couple years ago. I just think that's a really cool throwback look. And of all the throwback looks that they have, I kind of like that one the most. Is that the one with the TV logo? Uh, no, it's not TV logo. Here's the, the picture here I have of Isaiah Ford outrunning a uh, Tulsa defender. It's a regular VT logo, uh, but it just it, it's, it's sort of like a, a candy corn look with the, the orange, white, and the maroon on top. But I, I just think that was that was a good throwback look, and I, I like the stripe down the side of the pants, the way they have that. It's just uh, if you're thinking like, oh, man, yeah, like early 90s, that's a good way to look. Okay. My number three pick uh, is number 12 on your list, maroon pants and helmet on the road, worn at Duke in 2014. That's a good one. I do like that's it. Their best, that's their best current road look. I yeah, think. it's very very clean looking. Uh, I like the solid colored pants. Uh, I'm, a, I'm kind of a fan of that, but I do like that there's a little striping on the shoulder pads. Uh, that's a pretty cool look. Um, and if you if you want to find these pictures so you can kind of follow along, you can go to uh, just search uh, 
Roanoke.com, the Andy Bitter uh, uniform rankings, and it's like the first one that comes up. You can find that blog post. But uh, I like that look a lot. It's It seems sort of business-like, but also it's got a little flair to it. All right, my last pick. I could have gone with my number two one on the list, which is just the standard Virginia Tech road uniform. What they wore into Ohio State when they won. Uh, there's something about that one that uh, I just think it's a solid look. Uh, but I am going to go back. This is going back for, before the list uh, to go back to what they wore in the Michael Vick years. Okay. Uh, the classic home jersey on that. And I'm trying to call up a picture here yeah. for you. So you, you can just, see. You can see Andre Davis streaking toward the end zone. Yeah, it's, it's a maroon jersey. They have a maroon helmet. There's a white le- uh, number on the front. Uh, with a border on it, and then there's an orange number on the sleeve with a border on it that I just, when you think of like the heyday of Virginia Tech, that is the uniform you think of. And it's it's a little inconsistent, I guess, now with the two different colored numbers on it, but there's just something about that that like screams like, man, that's the Michael Vick era, and that was like the best that Virginia Tech was. So uh, I'm going to go with that as my third pick, and and I, I think a lot of fans wouldn't mind if they brought that look back. Yeah, it's a cool look. All right, what would be your worst pick, or you want me to go first? You can go first. <laughs> we we can both choose the same one on this because I'm it telling might be you, the I'm same. looking at it, and unfortunately, with Memorial Day coming up, uh, it, it's not really polite to say this, but some of the worst ones are the military appreciation ones. Yeah, they had a bad run there. They did. On those. And uh, I'm going to choose this one from 2013. It has some. Sort of an orange camouflage. The orange camo that was like yeah, it looked like it was Hunter's Appreciation Day, not Military it Appreciation does. Day. I mean, that was like you got this like what Military Appreciation Day? What are they invading Mars? Why are they wearing orange camouflage? What what is the use of that? Where would that ever come in handy? Yeah, not a fan of this at all. The rest of the uniform is all white except for this these orange patches, orange camouflage patches on the shoulder and on the helmet and in the numbers and the lettering across the uh, across the jersey. Um, just uh, they missed on that one. You're wrong. That is not the worst one in history. The worst one in history, of course, is the flexing foghorn leghorn <laughs> helmets that I have derided over the years. Uh, that was that weird one where they just had this big turkey mascot that's like flexing on one side. It's like the entire half of the helmet, yeah, that's bad. and the other half is like a number. It was it was part of Nike's thing. I think Boise State had something where they had like a big Bronco on one side, and that the other side was a number. Uh, it kind of worked for Boise State, and I think it worked for some other ones. It did not work for Virginia Tech. It just looked horrible. Uh, they wore that with like an orange uniform uh, against UVA when uh, Anton Exum had the interception at the end, and then Cody Jernell kicked the the, time, the field goal after Mike London screwed up the timeout situation. That wasn't a very good look either. Uh, with that helmet, but the, the the white road unis where it's just like a regular road uniform, and then they have just this big ugly splotch on the left hand side of the helmet, and you're looking for the press box. You're like, why is there a large brown splotch on the helmet? This is so bad, and I'm sure you got that effect on TV. But that is the worst. I remember when they put sort of like that helmet collage when they redid yeah. the whole Merriman Center, and they had that helmet up there initially. And I think jokingly, I like like I had done one of my Q and A's with Whit Babcock around that time. Like, what is that helmet doing in there? That thing is awful. And sure enough, like they got that helmet out of there, and they put like a regular VT like it was another one of their special helmets. But man, that was like 
they had some really misfires of that. The, the second worst, I think, was that Turkey Tracks. Yeah. Where it's just like, yeah, you, you really see bad. that, you see people put those stickers on their cars. It's like, it's one thing if it's on their cars, but put it on the side of the helmet. You're like, what is that? Right. Is that Virginia Tech? I mean, have some kind of VT. Or if it's the TV logo, I, I kind of like that. Uh, uh, fighting gobbler from a couple years ago. They wore at the Russell Athletic Bowl in the, the worst game ever played against Rutgers. Yeah, uh, I thought that was a, a nice throwback to at least an old logo that Virginia Tech had. But the turkey tracks is horrible, and the flexing foghorn leghorn is the worst of all time, and should you know should be burned if they have any <laughs> old versions of that sitting around the the new the office there. Well, I will say my sensibilities match up almost perfectly with yours when it comes to the worst. I mean, I, you did really like the worst. I know. I mean, you disagree to, a little bit on what's the best, but that's okay. I know how to hate on the worst <laughs> uniforms. That's for sure. Check out the blog post if you haven't seen it already. Okay, we're going to get out of here. We like to keep this thing around an hour, so cutting a, cutting a few things out, but uh, we like to end on a prediction. Bill Foley at Matt at Poisset Man. I'm sorry, I always screw that up, but Bill's a frequent emailer, and we appreciate it. Uh, on Twitter, Andy, do you who do you and Aaron McHokey like in the final three games? Cavs or Celtics? Hashtag go Hokies, he says. Um, I think it'd be interesting also to pick the Golden State-Houston series now that Houston has evened that one up. I think Golden State just has a gear that they'll flip on whenever they need it, and they're going to win that series. I think they're by far the best team in the NBA. So they, last night, I, I was surprised by that, but it's just like whenever they try, I feel like they just blow out the competition, and, and eventually they're going to try, and this is not going to be a series. Uh, I'm going to pick the Cavs in that Cavs. I know they haven't looked great uh, on the road in those games, but you know, game two they had a lead for a while there, and then it kind of fell apart. Uh, I just think when you have LeBron James that you give him enough opportunities on the road that they're going to win that one. And I, I just don't like the direction the Celtics had the last couple games. Yeah, I think home court matters a lot until Game 7. If you get to Game 7, I think the game is called very, very well down the line in terms of uh, you know officiating. And that, to me, that's one of the biggest things. One of the biggest reasons home court matters in basketball is because there's so many calls and uh, the home team's going to get a little bit of the tilt there on, on the calls. But I think in Game 7's, you see him call it pretty straight. And, uh, I mean, look, LeBron's uh, – his track record is pretty pretty amazing and pretty hard to uh, bet against, I would say. I, I, I honestly think with Houston's ability to hit three-pointers, I think they got a shot. Uh, I actually would and, – and they are going home. Now, again, I just said that game seven, it doesn't matter as much. But, uh, man, if they can get this game five coming up uh, – I give them a good shot to, to pull off the sh- the stunning upset here. Didn't they lose game three by 40? 40, 41 yeah. or something? Yeah. I just can't trust a team that loses by 40. I don't care how much they gave up in the fourth quarter and that kind of widened the margin. Like I just feel like Golden State has that gear that they can turn it on. The other side of it is I love watching this version of LeBron where he's just like, my teammates are so bad. Like, I'm just going to do it all myself. Like, I know people are like, oh, he doesn't have any teammates and he has to do it all himself. It's like, I like that. I like the, the do it all LeBron. It's pre-Miami. It's like, put it on my shoulders. Yeah. yeah. I, I kind of like him going about that. Now he has the capability. Like, before when he had to do that, he just didn't have enough. But now he's like, well, I'm going to score 40. I'm going to have 15 assists and 10 rebounds. <laughs> and I'm, I'm the best player in the world. No matter who you want to give the MVP to on a daily basis, I'm the best player in the world. I don't know. I, I, the Celtics have played very well at home. I just feel like 
you give him enough chances, it's, it's not going to happen. I haven't watched a minute of the NBA playoffs. I've watched my thing is a lot I tune hockey. I tune in the last five minutes, and if it's a game, I watch it, and if it's not, I don't. And except you fell for asleep that, last night. Yeah, for that reason, I don't really watch a whole lot of NBA playoffs. But yeah, that was a late game last night, and I fell have, asleep. Have you watched any of the hockey? I mean, this this Caps. Uh, I tuned series. into a lot of that game six of that Caps Lightning. That was a pretty. It was a pretty good crowd and a pretty good game. And you should also tune in whenever Vegas opens at home, whenever they have their first home game. Make sure you watch the pregame for the Vegas. I mean, it's, you know, the, the whole Vegas scene. It's really cool. They do like a laser show oh, on yeah. the ice. Yeah, and, and you know, it's like Cavman at uh, UVA has come to life, and he's a golden knight, and he actually does some things and stabs people and stuff. It's great. Wow. I, I thought Vegas would be more understated, to be honest. <laughs> There's a beheading and everything else. <laughs> All right. Well, that'll do it for this week. We appreciate you joining us, and we appreciate everyone who sent in their questions. If we didn't read your question today, we are holding on to these. Uh, hopefully, we can get to them in a future podcast. And, uh, again, sorry, Tristan, we didn't get to pick any caskets. We'll do that again some other time. For Andy Bitter, this is Aaron McFarling. We will see you next time.